everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. Today, episode 61, we're talking about tone woods. And I'm not going to lie, I'm really excited about this episode. Some of you may know a little bit about my academic background, but I have degrees in music, uh, voice performance specifically, but I also have a little degree in physics that kind of happened by accident because I just had an interest in physics and all of my science core classes and things like that ended up working towards a physics degree. So this blends my love of wood and woodworking with my love of music and my nerdy side of physics all into one episode. Now, this is a particular episode, I will warn you, it's gonna get geeky and very technical very quickly. And you may have no interest at all in building a guitar or building a piano or making a wooden flute or, or just don't care about tone woods. But I urge you to hang in there because the lessons learned in this episode, it's kind of in the same vein of things I've been talking about from day one of this podcast. Understanding those technical properties of the wood in order to find a species that's going to work for whatever your application is. In this particular episode, the application is making music. We'll be talking about various types of musical instruments and why they're made out of wood and what species they're made from and why. And really breaks down to that same process. What are the technical needs of a guitar, of a flute, of an oboe? And how do we match that with the technical properties and the, the acoustical properties, I should say, of the woods themselves in order to create the best product, to create the best guitar, the best oboe, the best bassoon, um, the best piano. So yeah, <laughs> this is a big one. So let me just say, uh, as usual, a quick thanks to my Patreon supporters. I've had quite a few new folks join sponsoring the show this week. Thank you so much, guys. It's, it means a lot when you do that. If you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash lumberupdate, and you can find everything you need to know there. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Just thank you, as always, for the continued support. So let's talk about Tonewoods. And, you know, we want to build an instrument. We want to build that guitar, that flute. So the instrument that we choose to build, it dictates what tone wood properties we're really talking about. So let's group the instruments into larger segments. Um, idiophones, those would be like percussive instruments like the xylophone um, that you're actually striking. And, you know, block of wood in different sizes creates different tones. That would be an idiophone. Quarterphones, those are the stringed instruments from the violins, the guitars, even the piano, although put a little asterisk next to the piano because that's a slightly different take on that. For that matter, the violin is a slightly different take on that. And then we have the aerophones. These are the woodwinds, um, you know, your clarinets and bassoons and oboes, flutes, didgeridoos. Those are all aerophones. So the, the idiophones, those percussive xylophones, they rely upon the vibration of that wood block itself, the vibration of the material. Stringed instruments, they rely upon the uh, almost amplification of the vibration created by the string through using a soundboard. Woodwinds, well, there's no real tension in play here. There, there's more about, it's not about vibrating the wood. It's about the air column created inside the tube of the flute or the clarinet or the didgeridoo. So they're very, very different mechanisms for creating a sound. Now, let me say, I, I'm not going to claim to be an expert in, in luthery or making flutes. In fact, I have never built a musical instrument other than you know a couple of little things helping out my wife's middle school classes with some physics of sound type things, you know, cheap little lutes and things like that. But um, so I, I did a little bit of digging on this. I'm fortunate, as you guys know, I work for a lumber company. We actually sell quite a bit of material to guitar manufacturers. So I talked to somebody at PRS Guitars and I talked to someone at Martin and someone at Taylor and even someone at Gibson. I also then spoke to a couple of my conductor friends back from my schooling days. Uh, I talked to them about the acoustics of sound. They have a great understanding of the full orchestra. And I talked to several of my friends who are principal, uh, one is a principal bassoonist, one is a principal clarinetist in symphony orchestras around the country. And then finally, I talked to my father-in-law who is a physicist and um, kind of dialed in and refreshed my knowledge of 
impedance and you know coefficient of resonance and fun stuff like that so there's there's i'm recycling a bunch of different knowledge but i did seek out uh, information from some experts on this and one of the things that kind of came from this is there are a lot of different species that have known characteristics and much of the the tone wood knowledge in the industry, specifically in like in the guitar building industry, because that's probably the, the biggest one with the widest appeal to the largest audience. A lot of that knowledge in the guitar industry is very anecdotal. It's accepted as fact from thousands and thousands of guitars and guitarists and experimentation from building these guitars and mixing and matching various woods and playing with with mahogany versus maple and getting a feel for how it sounds. So, you know, it's known that spruce makes the best sound boards. It's got great acoustical properties that has good, strong, fundamental tones, broad dynamic range, but it can be a bit weak when you play it lightly on a guitar. Although I will say there's a lot of argument about the best type of spruce. You know, the Engelmann spruce is said to be better because it does have a little bit stronger fundamental when when plucked or strummed lightly while played more aggressively. It's got that really clear ringing tone. Sitka has said, you know, it's good fundamentals, but it's kind of more subtle on those lightly played things. And then there's some that say Adirondack spruce is the best of all because it handles the broadest dynamic range, the broadest uh, range of attack on the strings. But then you've got guys like uh, Taylor that said, you know what, we're going to go with Lutz spruce and kind of go with this hybrid approach. It's very, uh, very open to interpretation depending on who you talk to. But in general, the spruces are renowned for being that good, fundamental, strong ringing tone for a soundboard. Generally, maple is known to be very bright with a good sustain, lots of high overtones. Mahogany is a nice warm sound, kind of twangy. And, and actually, think of the Beatles in kind of their early days, uh, because they were playing early Gibson mahogany guitars. That um, twang, it's been a hard day's night. That, that opening chord, so mahogany guitar right there. Nice, warm, twangy tone. Uh, rosewood, often associated with acoustic guitars, even with solid body guitars. Nice, clear, warm tone. Um, it rings like a bell and it's particularly interesting because it is a very hard wood, but it's got large pores and we'll talk about that soon. Why that creates that clear ringing fundamental tone. Um, ash used a lot in solid body guitars, really bright tones, clear sustain. But what's interesting is the variations as well. You think of like white ash, really, really bright kind of screaming tones you get in a lot of rock and roll music. But then swamp ash is often prized for solid body guitars because it's got that warmer feel to it. And think of Jimi Hendrix here and that kind of sultry rock and roll blues sound. Well, Hendrix was playing a Fender Swamp Ash guitar. So there's a very clear distinction to be made there. And you can go over and over and over and, and again and look at, you know, the masters of guitar and why they favorite certain favored certain types of woods because it really played into their style. You know, Clapton has his own style of guitars. The classical guitarists are going to have their own favorite based upon the style of music that they play. But why? Why are is swamp ash creating that warmer tone than white ash why has mahogany got that twangy sound and this is where i wasn't getting answers because you talk to a guy like the guy i talked to at prs he's been building guitars for 40 years and he just knows that i'm going to use mahogany for this i'm going to use maple for the neck and i'm going to use uh, um, uh, a maple for it for the fretboard here um, some of it is balancing economics going with a, a lower and more affordable guitar some of it is the high end and you can spare no expense on it Um, But a lot of it is the acoustics and just that general understanding, this makes this type of tone. So what I want to talk about today is what are the technical aspects that we can look at and say mahogany is at the warm tone. Let's examine those technical aspects and get an understanding of the acoustical properties of that wood that leads to that twangy, warm tone. This will allow us to be able to take those technical aspects and lead us to consider kind of additional species and to predict to some extent how they will sound. Mostly because it's 
you know, wood is awesome, right? Wood is a phenomenal material for this. And that's going to be the next question. Well, what other composite materials or what modern materials can be used? Because certainly, especially when you start talking about luthiers, most of the really, really nice woods they use, the high-end woods they use are CITES listed. And, you know, being endangered and sourcing them is, is a really solid concern. And just about every guitar manufacturer out there has a rock solid lacy um, and vetting and regulation process to make sure that they're buying legally and sustainable woods, but they all recognize that they need to find alternatives. You know, Sitka spruce is not as easy to find as it was before. Engelman spruce, for that matter, Adirondack spruce, good luck finding that. You know, it was, it was heavily used and back in the day, not many people paid attention to it. A lot of the rosewoods are CITES two species and probably getting close to CITES appendix one. And you've got to think really what other species can we look at? So an understanding of those technical properties and how we can embrace them to discover these other species. But ultimately, the, the real reason why we use wood to build all these instruments and not you know carbon fiber, although that is being used to some extent, but the real reason is wood is orthotropic. We talk about this all the time. It moves differently. It's anisotropic. In other words, it moves more across the tangential plane than it does across the radial plane. And those both move more than it does on the longitudinal plane. Well, orthotropic means that it has different mechanical properties in those three distinct directions, tangential, radial, and longitudinal. In essence, we get a more organic and interesting sound from wood due to this variance in the density, the strength, the hardness, all within the same material. Just change directions of the force or the vector and you're gonna get a different mechanical property and you can tweak that in order to get these really, really cool sounds. One way to think of this is think of an electric keyboard. Specifically, think of an electric keyboard from like the 1980s. You know, that electric keyboard tone versus an actual piano tone. You know, it's sterile versus warm and rich and filled with overtones coming out of something like a Steinway or, you know, a Yamaha or some even a, a really, really cheap version of a piano where a string is struck as compared to the electronic tone. Certainly we've gotten better with modern technology at synthesizing those low, mid and, and, and high overtones, but the unpredictable nature of that organic wood material is what will always set a wooden instrument apart from an electronic instrument. So the real extreme example of this is the human voice, where the entire mechanism is a soft, squishy mix of cartilage and one, one bone, the hyoid bone, and that changes the whole mechanism, changes its shape and size and hardness and tension constantly as air is forced through it. So bear with me here a second. I said this at the beginning, I, I have a degree in voice and we often joke, I've said this in previous episodes, we used to joke that um, instrumentalists were really just trying to emulate the vocalists. All instruments were essentially created to emulate and imitate the human voice, the original first instrument. Maybe, I don't know, th th thrack banging on a wall with a stick might be the first instrument. But even then, I bet Thrack and his brother Thrud probably sang a, you know, a Cro-Magnum skinning chant or something like that first. So the human voice is that ultimately adaptable medium. So for instance, you can bounce the sound off your hard palate, right behind your upper teeth, that hard uh, bony surface. And you can get a really, really bright, clear ringing tone. Fee, really ringing off the top of that hard palate. Or I can push that sound back to the back of my throat in kind of the domed soft palate and get a warmer tone. Fa, fee, fa. Very different, different timbre there just by changing where the sound is placed. You can go right in the middle and go foo and get that brightness, but also that higher, more resonant ringing quality just by going right in the middle. You know, that foo is a raised soft palate, but also directing the sound into the hard palate, getting a mixture of warmth and brightness and the compromise of the two. Or you can get really funky and go foo and only vibrate half of your chords and move into falsetto and get an incredibly different sound, all with one voice, you know, 
and and you imagine over a course of I'm I'm changing vowels to specifically kind of uh, exaggerate that change, but that flexibility is because of the truly organic nature of the instrument. Don't even get me started talking about formant frequencies and the ability to shape your resonating chamber to match a room's formant frequency so that a single human voice can overpower the entire orchestra. That's some cool stuff. I'm not going to do that here because, well, frankly, I'm not very good at it. So I'm not going to, but there's just the, the basic understanding of why we're building with wood because that orthotropic nature allows it to create that warmth. It creates those low and mid and high overtones. It creates harmonics that aren't possible with material that is predictable, with material that has the same structural properties in every direction. So no matter what force is, is, is pushed across it, in this case, we're talking acoustic, we're talking sound waves and the vibration moving across it, you're going to get that same kind of sterile output on, on a composite material, but you're going to get an organic output, a beautiful, warm, rich sound full of color and timbre and sustain and beauty, frankly, by using wood. So yeah, if you hadn't guessed already by this show, I'm biased to wood, but I'm also really biased to good music. So those, those two together, yeah, they make beautiful music. So let's step back a little bit and let's try to define the elements that we're going to be talking about here, both acoustical elements, but also just basic properties. And we talked a little bit about this in the original episode, I did probably episode three or four, where I talked about understanding the technical properties. One, probably first and foremost, is the density. You know, how much stuff is, is in the wood? And we, we can call this sometimes related to hardness, sometimes related to weight. It's all kind of in that, you know, how massive is that block of wood. You know, a piece of northeastern white pine is going to be much less dense than a piece of hard maple. This is very evident just by picking them up. Hard maple feels heavier. It's denser. Try driving a chisel into pine and driving a chisel into maple, and you will very readily see that hard maple is substantially denser than northeastern white pine. The stiffness or the um, modulus of elasticity. I've talked about this a lot. How rigid is that? When you, when you tap it, do you get a clear sound coming back from it? Can you, can you bend it? Will it flex back once you've bend it? That rigidity is incredibly important. Again, this can be referred to as Young's modulus or modulus of, rup- of rupture or MOR or just plain stiffness. The bending strength or MOE, modulus of elasticity, is again, how much can you bend it before it fails? At what point, how much force can you exert before it snaps on you and, and the, the fibers start to fail? Um, Poisson's ratio is the idea that as force is applied, deformation occurs. So um, think of uh, a rubber band. And if you grab the rubber band slackly in two hands and you pull it apart, the rubber band is going to stretch. So that when the, the rubber band is, is slack, imagine it's a perfect circle. As you stretch it, it doesn't be, it's not a perfect circle anymore. It becomes an, an oval. It becomes really thin in the middle as you begin to stretch it apart. Likewise, if you took like a, a bit of rubber tube and you compressed it between your thumb and forefinger, it's going to get fatter in the middle as you're compressing it. The opposite happens as you pull it apart, you're adding tension. It's going to get thinner in the middle. This is Poisson's ratio, that ratio of, of that deformation is perpendicular to the force that's applied. This is particularly important, especially when you start talking about stringed instruments where everything is in tension. You're putting those strings on there and tightening them down and you're putting tension and compression on certain parts. It's going to cause deformation. As you change the shape of that, you're going to change its resonant resonant qualities and therefore the tone that's created from it. So Poisson's ratio comes up quite a bit. Flexure is... um, Really, the amount of deformation you can see upon compression, but really we could just talk about a compression. If you take a board and you stand it on its end, so the longitudinal axis up, and you push on the end grain, you're you're putting it into compression. And the amount of deformation or flex you're going to get from that uh, is what we're talking about. Compression and tension are the opposite. I just talked about that with Poisson's ratio. Compression would be pushing from the ends towards the center. Tension would be pulling from the ends towards the outside, putting it under tension. 
Um, the sound radiation coefficient, this one comes up a lot when you look at like charts of tone woods. You'll see this usually as, as a, um, a column on the chart. The sound radiation coefficient is really kind of like the sustain. How long will that particular body vibrate? You know, when, when an initial frequency is resonated through it, how long will it vibrate and kind of stop of its own accord? So a high radiation coefficient means it's going to sit there and resonate and vibrate for quite some time. Um, low coefficient means you may tap it on a make sound, but it quickly dies off. Uh, very, very low resonance. Resonance is probably a good way to put it. Um, dampening um, or impedance is, is really, it's the speed of sound in the material itself due to its density. So as the, the sound wave propagates through that material, how much is the density affecting the speed of that sound wave as it moves through? Denser objects may slow it down a little bit more. Uh, less dense objects may allow it to resonate a little bit more. And this is going to directly affect that uh, sound radiation coefficient. And importantly, the speed of sound, well, that kind of, that's a major factor here because that determines the color of the sound. Um, how, how fast of a return are we getting? And you hear this a lot. You see, you know, one of the, the old shop tricks from the, the luthiers is they pick up a board and they're tapping on it and they're listening for, is this a good tone with? They're listening for that resonance, the, the sharpness or the dullness of the return of the sound when they tap on the surface. That's, that's that speed of sound we're looking for. The other thing, if you've ever walked into like a concert hall or walked into, uh, you know, a practice room or something like that, and you start clapping your hands, feeling for how live is the room? You know, we're about to come in here and our choir is going to perform and you're clapping and it's like, oh my God, this room is dead. That's that, the speed of sound in that room. And it's a whole bunch of factors. It could be the impedance in the walls itself. It could be dampening factors in the walls itself. And you're designing an acoustical room for the best effect, like a concert hall. You can change that speed of sound. I remember the University of Colorado, uh, my second to last year there, we developed, or they built a whole new wing and there were practice rooms in there that had, you could change the acoustics of the room. You could dial in and different panels and everything shifted inside the walls. And you could dial in like a small practice room. You could dial in uh, a very big space, like a concert hall. It was really, really cool. You're talking about a practice room that, you know, you put three people in there and it's very crowded. You know, those are very good friends if you're in that practice room. Very, very small, probably, we're probably talking, most of those practice rooms were maybe a six foot square. You know, eight foot ceiling, six foot square, enough to maybe put a, a console piano in there, maybe an upright piano, you know, or in the instrumental rooms, a couple of chairs and some music stands. And that was it. And yet you could dial in the acoustics to change it to be the size of Carnegie Hall and get that kind of resonance and reverb just by dialing in that acoustical thing. That is manipulating how that return is, that speed of sound we're talking about. Manipulating several things like, you know, the impedance and, and the sound radiation coefficient. So these are all kind of terms that I'm going to throw around from, from here on out. And actually the, the thumbnail for this episode, and if you're at lumberupdate.com, the, the feature image that you'll find there is actually a graph that shows um, the uh, Young's modulus or the stiffness plotted against density which can tell you kind of how the speed of sound is responding through certain materials. So for, for, from that chart, we basically, we start, when we start talking about soundboards, we see that soundboards made from lower density woods, which have a relatively high stiffness or Young's modulus are fantastic. They have a, a very, um, high sound radiation coefficient. They just ring and they resonate and they vibrate forever and they really excite the air around it and produce a very loud sound. Um, but woods that have um, a high hardness, but low, or excuse me, low density, but high hardness, ring and ring and ring. But if they have high density and high hardness, they will produce a louder sound, but they don't really ring. They don't resonate quite as long. They, the sustain is not quite there. And that's really what that, that graph is talking about. And this really starts to get into what I was talking about earlier, where chordophones and idiophones and aerophones and choosing the right mixture of things for that. So um, woods for wooden, wind instruments and like xylophone bars and things like that, they have a very high density um, because we want them to, to ring you know, right away. 
but we don't necessarily need them to resonate forever and ever and ever because there's other mechanisms going on there. In the case of a xylophone, you're striking it with a mallet and you want a little bit of resonance, but you're going to strike it again. You don't want a super, super long sustain or actually, actually scratch that totally opposite. I just said that wrong. Wind instruments is, is a totally different thing you're playing with xylophone. You want it to ring a little bit without sustained striking. You don't want to continue striking with that mallet, whether it's a hard mallet or soft mallet. So you want a little bit more ring out of the xylophone. So you choose a different wood for that. Likewise, violin bows have to have an an exceptionally high density and a very high Young's modulus. And that affects both the tension of the horsehair in the bow, but also how we're transferring that vibration, how we're controlling and dampening the vibration of the strings itself on the violin. So let, let me, I'm kind of dancing around the, 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 the subject here. Let's really dive into the type of instruments and how we choose a wood for them. Starting with the woodwinds, the, the aerophones. The sound is created by a column of air, but not that the column air is vibrating the wood, but we're vibrating the air column itself. As you're blowing into a clarinet over that reed, you're manipulating the column of air that runs down that center bore of the clarinet. There's really not enough pressure of the air vibrating against the inside of that column of wood to really excite and vibrate the wood itself. That's not what we're talking about. In fact, we really don't want that. We don't want the wood itself interfering with the frequencies we create by vibrating the column of air. So what we need is a very dense, very stable wood with very tight pores because the smooth inner surface that is created from that very, very dense wood. Again, think of you know the earlier uh, example I gave of northeastern white pine and hard maple. Very, very different um, hardness. Or here's a good way to look at it. Look at something like um, polonia that is uh, low density but very, very porous. Huge, giant pores versus hard maple, very high density with basically invisible pores. And when you bore out that center hole down the center of that clarinet or that flute or that didgeridoo, you get a a very smooth inner surface. Well, that inner surface doesn't mess with the air column that runs through. It doesn't create air turbulence because of a rough, unpredictable shape. That smooth inner surface is much more predictable to give you a predictable reaction to the air column that you're blowing through it. The stability um, is important here so that it's, as, as the wood expands and contracts, it's changing the shape of that inner bore. It's changing the shape of the column of the air directly. You know, if, if the inside of that clarinet swells, it's going to change the pitches that are produced on the finger holes on that clarinet because you've decreased the volume or the size of that inner bore. Moreover, the instrumentalist is blowing warm, moist air into the center of that wooden column. Well, what do we know about warm, moist air? It causes wood to expand. So we want a wood that is going to resist that moisture, that's going to have its own internal properties that maybe not resist it, but at least be resistant enough for the time being that during you know an hour-long concerto, it's not going to dramatically change shape through all that warm, moist air blowing through it. The other thing to think about here is the, the machining or just the, the manufacture of that flute or that clarinet must be very crisp and clean. As you bore the sound holes down the barrel, they need to leave very distinct holes. You can't have any kind of tearing, you can't have any kind of um, wearing or rounding over that surface because that is going to create turbulence. If you have a sharp aris on the inside of that sound hole, it's gonna create a more predictable air column. Moreover, you think of multi-piece instruments. Think again of a clarinet that's going to have multiple parts joined together at ferrules. The the creation of those ferrule points and those seams have to be super, super sharp so that they don't interrupt that airflow and cause distortion and cause overtones and things that can change the character, the color, even the pitch of the sound being blown through that clarinet. So those things, extremely dense, very tight grain, and very, very stable and even water resistant means that species like Grenadillo, African blackwood, African blackwood is like the species for making clarinets. Um, boxwood, pearwood, cocobolo, another good clarinet species, olive, 
Great species you see on a lot of flutes. Also the highly, highly oily nature of olive resists all of that warm, moist air blowing through. That's a perfect example. Indian rosewood, um, even maples. Um, and there's a variety of maples that, that, that come into play here. But these are all very dense, very hard, very smooth textured woods, which is exactly what we need for the aerophone. Because we're not vibrating the wood, we're vibrating the air column. And we want the wood to kind of get out of the way, to not interfere with the vibrating air column. Very, very different from a lot of the other instruments. Now, idiophones, the xylophones, the, the percussive instruments there, these are not membranophones. Membranophones are drums where you stretch something over a frame. These are, you're striking the wood block itself. So um, the sound here is created by striking the wood and the wood is vibrating. The wood is exciting the air around at a certain frequency, creating that tone. It's, it's vibrating at 440 cycles per second, so now you've got an A. Um, this is uh, produced by that shorter attack of the mallet. So it's, it's a, an attack and gone. It's a whack with the mallet and then it's gone. It's not a, con, a sustained strumming of a string or a continuous strumming of a string. It's a bam, hit it and it's done. So what we need is that wood to ring when it's hit, but then continue to vibrate, continue to have a sustain to the sound. Moreover, there needs to be much less impedance. So the speed of sound, as it's affected by the density of the material, it needs to, to continue to ring for a longer period of time because we're not continually striking it. We're gonna strike it once and it needs to ring all of its own accord without additional excitation, without additional striking with the mallet. The other thing about the impedance is it needs to be not heavily, if you've got the right impedance for these, and not heavily affected by dampening factors. So think of, um, well, a drum. You whack a drum and it, it, it resonates. But the minute you put your finger on the skin of that snare, um, it stops vibrating, it stops making that sound. Um, a xylophone, if you, you think about it, a xylophone is actually resting on its frame. And there are felt pads and things that the actual xylophone block rests on. You strike the xylophone bar in the middle, but it continues to vibrate and make that, that sound even though it's touching at those two points on the end. That impedance allows it to continue to vibrate, continue to resonate, to continue to create sound despite it being touched and held on those two ends. Um, out near the end because that's the lowest area of impedance. Um, so it, it's important to that particular mixture of things is incredibly important here. So what we need is something that's going to ring. It's going to produce a nice loud sound. Well, soundboards produce nice loud sounds and rings. Soundboards are low density with high stiffness and hardness to produce that loudest sounds with the longest sustain. The problem, however, is that low density of a good soundboard wood like spruce means that when you strike it with that mallet, it's going to dent and deform. And that deformation is going to change the pitch. It's also just gonna wear it out. It's also going to create more of a clunk sound. It's not gonna ring. It's gotta be hard. Same difference if I tap the cushion of the seat that I'm sitting in or tap the hard maple top of the desk I'm sitting at. Two very different sounds. The same fee and fa, that type of difference in color. Is caused by the hardness of the sound bouncing off the hard palate or the soft palate or the hard maple or the upholstery. So if you've got a, a, a low density wood, like a soundboard, it's gonna create that nice loud resonating sound that rings and rings and rings. But when you strike it with a mallet, especially if you're striking it with a harder mallet, um, you're just not gonna get that ringing sound of the xylophone. Even if you're using, you know, um, and actually even more importantly, if you're playing a xylophone with a padded mallet, it's important that it ring when you strike it like that. If you strike a softer wood with a padded mallet, you're gonna get almost no sound. So it has to ring, the xylophone has to ring when struck with a hard mallet and with a soft mallet, and also will create different attacks based upon that. So, um, yeah, <laughs> kind of a weird situation here. These woods have to, they, they, they have to be really hard. They've got to have low, uh, low loss of sound. In other words, ring and vibrate, um, which comes usually from a lower density. 
that lower density means there's more air, there's more room for the sound wave to vibrate and pop propagate through. But that lower density, again, is a real problem. We've gotta have high density that allows it to ring and vibrate through. And we also need to have something that's gonna be stable, because obviously as it deforms and changes shape, it's gonna change the pitch. And it needs to be very, very hard to respond to that striking. And there are some very specific woods. Wingay is one, Honduran rosewood, Amazon rosewood, Paduke. Those are all classic species you're gonna find in things like xylophones that have a good mixture of that hardness, that speed of sound, that resonating coefficient, that impedance, that is all going to make a good xylophone wood. Which brings us to the really interesting stuff, the chordophones, the stringed instruments. Here, the sound, it's radiated onto the soundboard and essentially amplified. So the string is plucked and that excites the air to, to a certain frequency, certain cycles per second. But it's a very small column of air around the string. The string itself has very high dampening um, or impedance due to kind of a low hardness, but a very, very high density. So in other words, the string doesn't make a whole lot of sound, but it can very precisely control the frequency because of the tension applied to the string. So we get that precision in pitch, but kind of a soft sound. So what we do is we reflect that pitch onto something that amplifies and radiates the sound really well, AKA the soundboard. The soundboard has low density with a high stiffness, nice, nice hard, bright sound of the hard maple, but the low density allows it to resonate and to ring and have that sustain and amplify and bounce the sound back in the terms of a violin or an acoustic guitar, bounce it around that sound chamber and release it out the F hole to give you that lovely amplified sound. Um, moreover, the shape of that soundboard um, is gonna play a major, major role in this. And you think about the bowed tops of violins um, and certain guitars, mandolins and things that, and, and um, ouds with the rounded backs that will reflect that sound around inside to create a certain timbre, a certain color. So you shape that soundboard, or moreover, the bridge over which the strings are stretched is going to change different things. And that bridge, the material the bridge is made from is also going to transfer that vibration into the soundboard and help to amplify it as well. So if you've got a, a wood that is going to have a very sharp attack and very crisply transfer the sound bent down into the resonating soundboard, but that bridge material isn't necessarily gonna resonate itself very much. In other words, throw, um, competing frequency waves and you may end up with superposition issues and create weird overtones that, that were not intended. It's going to be a nice transfer mechanism. Hard maple is a good example of a bridge material that the vibrating string is gonna shoot down the hard maple and go right into the soundboard and resonate out cleanly from that low density soundboard. So again, as I say, the, the spruce is kind of the hallmark soundboard species. Very low density, very high stiffness. So room to vibrate, yet it's not gonna deform because it's super, super stiff. The loudness of the soundboard increases with the stiffness and it decreases with the density. So spruce um, has a, a resonating coefficient or a coefficient of resonance of about 12, whereas maple, is six. So spruce is gonna be a lot louder, twice as loud as maple. And it's mainly because you're getting that superposition. You're getting that constant ringing, that reinforcement of those sound waves. That initial sound wave passes through and it creates a sound. That initial sound wave, let's just say for the sake of argument, it's gonna pass through the spruce and through the maple at the same speed. But in maple, it's gonna pass through without exciting a lot of the fibers around it and causing them to vibrate. Whereas as that same sound wave passes through the spruce, the lower density is gonna give you more room for vibration. It's gonna excite the fibers and the material around that sound wave, creating more sound waves that are gonna stack on top of one another, superposition principle, to create a more amplified, ringing, louder sound. That's the beauty of the soundboard. Uh, low density, high stiffness are the woods we're looking at for, for that. Stability, however, is gonna be key here in choosing your woods because again, the movement is gonna change the pitch via the length, which is, you know, you think about um, your the strings themselves, the length of those strings and the tension on those strings is what's creating the different, si the different sounds or moreover, the diameter of those strings um, 
is changing the pitch um, as it's plucked. So if the wood is moving, that's going to either increase or decrease the tension on those strings or across the bridge. Or in some instances, if it moves, it's changing the actual resonating chamber shape. Again, going back to that concave, inside concave shape of a violin soundboard, if that moves and it starts to flatten out, it's gonna dramatically change the sound. So you need um, something that's gonna be super stable. Um, there are points about aging wood or the breaking in of an instrument, and older instruments are gonna have that sweeter sound, uh, a much nicer tonal nature to them. And this, a lot of this comes down to the stability of things. As the, um, the wood stabilizes, it's not moving as much, but also as it gets older and older, it dries out more. Uh, more of the moisture and the resins and things like that begin to dry out, and essentially, it decreases the density. So again, the lower the density, the louder that's going to be. But as the density is decreasing, it's not changing the stiffness or the Young's modulus. So we know that high stiffness and low density makes the perfect soundboard. If as that Sitka spruce ages, its stiffness stays the same, really, really high, but its low density gets even lower and lower and lower as it matures, you're getting an even louder, brighter sounding soundboard. And that's why a lot of guitar companies now are going through processes like rarefaction or even torrefaction in order to alter the density of the woods. Rarefaction is a better option here because you're lowering the density without changing that Young's modulus. Whereas torrefaction, we've talked about this in previous episodes, it's lowering the density, but it's also weakening the wood. It, the Young's modulus begins to drop. The stiffness is not quite as there. So you know, too much torrefaction and, and it is a losing game. You're not getting the same benefit as you would with rarefaction, which is what happens naturally as things begin to dry out. So there is something to be said about how older instruments have a, a better, better is a relative term, but we'll just say a better sound to it. The important thing here with these chordophones is there are dynamic forces at play here. The entire structure is under tension or compression in some instances. So the resulting deformation from that compression or tension change totally changes the total quality. And again, this can be because it's changing the tension on the string. It also can be because of that Poisson ratio I talked about before, whereas less tension, less compression is on that guitar neck, it may actually change the width of that guitar neck. Um, same thing applies with the, uh, the soundboard itself. If the soundboard moves and there's less uh, tension on that domed soundboard, you're going to get a very different sound coming out of it. So stability is kind of a big deal, but strength is a major big deal because of all those dynamic forces, all that tension and compression that's just part of being a stringed instrument. I can remember uh, doing, again, studying at the University of Colorado at high altitude, very dry climate we used to do concerts up in the mountains. We'd go up to Estes Park quite a bit and perform at the Stanley Hotel and the stringed instruments just hated it because like they would they would go out of tune so quickly. Now modern strings are much better at this, but I remember doing an early music festival at the Stanley where there were uh, viola da gambas being played with gut strings and they basically had to tune them after every piece because the, the, the climate up there at uh, 9,000 feet in Estes Park was just not conducive to this. It was constantly changing. In that instance, it was the strings more than the instruments themselves. But yeah, you can imagine how stability is super, super important when you've got all that tension at play there. The other thing to think about, and again, the orthotropic nature of wood means that the different mechanical properties across different axes means that we like to use cortisone not only for that stability, that lack of movement, but it adds rigidity due to that internal structure, the rays and the orientation of the denser lignin means that, you know, you've got a, a more rigid, aka better soundboard out of that with the same density. So you can change, you can increase the Young's modulus of the same species just by getting a quarter sawn nature. If you want proof of that, take a, a flat sawn piece of something and a quarter sawn piece of the same species and plane them and see the difference. Or try to drive a chisel into the flat sawn species versus into the quarter sawn species and you will see a definite hardness difference just the way the structure is stacked in that wood. So here again, we use that quarter sawn for the stability like in the neck of a guitar but we also know that we're giving a harder surface 
Um, the greater stability in the soundboard means it's gonna move less across its width, that widest dimension, but it's also going to be slightly stiffer than a flat sawn soundboard, which is gonna give you that louder, brighter tone. Now, solid body guitars are kind of a different issue. They're still string instruments, but here we're trying to amplify let me see if I can put this. We're trying to amplify the resonating air around the strings, but we're, we're, we're resonating the wood itself. Where in an acoustic guitar, you know, the, the strings are vibrating, that vibration is transferred to the soundboard, the soundboard resonates and it creates that amplification of sound. Here, the entire guitar um, is, is vibrating in, a, in, you know, we've got a thicker piece here. So we're getting much more color and timbre based upon the species itself. We're not getting a lot of amplification. You know, unplug a, a solid body guitar and play it. And, you know, it's kind of twangy, <laughs> you know, it's literally tinny because you're getting that tiny little sound not heavily amplified because generally solid body guitars are very hard, very dense woods. Well, what do we know? good soundboard is low density and high stiffness. Well, you may have high stiffness in something like swamp ash, but you've also got very, very high density. So it's not going to ring like that Sitka spruce soundboard. So the ring comes from electronic amplifications and the pickups and things that are put in there and plugged into an amplifier. So it's vibrating. You know, the wood itself, that ash is vibrating. It's just really softly and we rely upon the electronic amplification. But the cool part about solid bodies is we get to really play with the structural differences in the wood to create tones. And that's what I was talking about earlier about um, Hendrix's Fender guitars versus the Beatles' um, Mahogany Gibson guitars. They're both electric guitars, but they created very different sounds. And you'll find that those different sounds are hallmarks of certain styles of music. You know, Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen, played a very different instrument than Eric Clapton, even though they both would be from the same, well, Clapton kind of predates, but all, you know, contemporaries of one another, but they played very different music. Clapton's more bluesy tone definitely doesn't go with Eddie Van Halen shredding on the guitar. Two very different instruments produce very different colors and timbres from, from the woods that they're used. And you look at uh, solid body guitar manufacturers and they'll offer several different choices and look them up and they give really good descriptions of the color and the timbre that comes from them. Everything from basswood to mahogany to uh, certainly maple and ash and lots of exotics like blackwood and things like that that show up and give you very distinct sounds. And the guys that really know what they're talking about can listen to guitar and go, oh, that's ash. Oh, that's swamp ash. You know, this is what I was talking about earlier by talking. Um, I learned a lot from the guy at PRS specifically. He spent a lot of time with me. And I mean, he was strumming guitars um, and, you know, he could close his eyes and tell you that's what the species is. That's the, the, the level of expertise. And I imagine you spend enough time with it. You understand the tonewood properties of that particular species. There is the unquantifiable thing. You know, we're building a solid body guitar we want high density. We want stiffness. We want hardness. You know, that's just the, the nature of it. We're relying upon the electronic amplification to kind of fake the rest of the way. So what we're really doing is just playing with ash and playing with mahogany and playing with basswood, playing with these different species and listening. And that's where the anecdotal nature of this comes in. It's hard to point to a specific technical property. Moreover, you can point to, you could research swamp ash and go, okay, here is, there's 0.3 difference in this ratio and this coefficient versus this particular species. But then you're gonna pick up another piece of swamp ash and it's gonna be different. Or a different section of that swamp ash tree is going to produce a different feel and color than maybe the base of the swamp ash, which by the way, that's really produces the greatest tones. People, when they look for swamp ash, they're looking for closer to the base. They're gonna get the denser wood from that. That's the really cool part that you can't put numbers on, that you can't sit in the laboratory and go, this is going to be the perfect guitar. This just has to be played. You have to make it out of that material and you have to play with it. And moreover, mixing and matching those different species, using one species for the body, one species for the neck, and one species for, um, for the fretboard, um, all of those can blend together to create different tones, different overtones, different color, very distinct 
sounds. And you go to Gibson guitars and you look at their high-end range and the low-end range and they sound distinctly different because of the different materials chosen in them. Same thing at Taylor, same thing at Martin. In fact, Martin, uh, the guy I talked to at Martin was talking specifically about how you know, ebony was is, is becoming very difficult to get. Macassar ebony was more acceptable in fretboards. Then they started moving into more domestic species for fretboards, and they created an entirely different sound that was very attractive for a lot of bluegrass players. And that became like a line of guitars that they don't call their bluegrass line, but it pretty much is what it is because of what they've chosen to use for their fretboards. Pretty cool. Um, still in the string side of things, violin bows are particularly weird. They control the sound produced by the strings in the violin to kind of create sustain and to shape the frequencies produced by exciting and dampening of the stretch strings. So the woods used in a violin bow, they have to have high bending strength because you don't want a really strong arc to them. They need to hold that horsehair really, really taut without breaking. So they need to have high bending strength. Um, they... Uh, have to have a strong amount of dampening because that's really what we're trying to do. We're shaping the sound, the song, excuse me, the sound on the violin strings themselves by dampening with a horsehair. Well, you don't want the horsehair to vibrate and cause the bow wood to resonate strongly. So it needs to kind of be dull sounding. It needs to dampen heavily so it's not creating its own frequencies. But it also has to be lightweight. If you have a super heavy bow, there's no way you're going to be able to play melismas, you know, uh, in, in, in your you know, pick, pick something crazy, you know, pick, pick any, any, heck, any Mozart piece um, with the long melismas running across that, or, you know, Bach did his fair amount of that as well. You're going to have crazy speed and there's no way you're going to be able to respond with a super heavy bow. Not only is it going to be super heavy, the inertia is going to be difficult to overcome both on the attack and the draw back across, and you're going to get a very sluggish sound. So it has to be very lightweight. Um, but at the same time, very dense and hard to create that dampening um, and, and, and strength. So all of these control the action in the hand of the violinist, but they also color the sound and the responsiveness from the drawing and even the striking of the strings as you would play in pizzicato. That strength to hold the horsehair needs to be tight enough that you can strike the string with that pizzicato sound. Whereas if it were not stiff enough, the horsehair would flex and you get more of a thud instead of the bright plink that you get when you, when you play pizzicato. Moreover, the actual shape of the bow plays heavily into the responsiveness, just like the shaping of sound bars and the inside of sound boards in violins and guitars will create a different sound. The shaping of the bow and the concavities and convexities you create change the sound as well. Pernambuco is pretty much the king of the bow woods, but Masarinduba and even Snakewood have become very common as species for violin bows because they all have that lighter weight nature, that high bending strength, strong dampening properties, heavy density, high Janka hardness really, really specific things kind of in the Venn diagram that you have to meet in order to make a good violin bow. Now, pianos, still stringed instruments, right? But a totally different thing here. The strings are now struck to create the sound. And a lot of this is due to, we just need extra force. It's kind of like a mix between an idiophone and a quarterphone. Um, because the piano is so large and because the strings themselves are under a great deal of tension, you go all the way down to the, the bass side of things, big, heavy strings, long strings put under a great deal of tension all the way up to the fine strings, you need to have a heavy soundboard. Well, in violins and guitars, you, you have a really, really thin soundboard, sometimes just a couple of millimeters thick. The beauty of something like spruce is it's gonna maintain its rigidity even in that really thin soundboard. Well, you use spruce, and spruce is still used for most soundboards and pianos. I know the Steinway people still use Sitka spruce in all their soundboards. But if you try to put that much tension, uh, piano wire tension on a two millimeter thick soundboard, it would deform like crazy. So the soundboard in a piano is much, much thicker. Well, that added thickness is going to create a lot more damping. It's going to kill that ringing of the sound. So how do we create the sound? How do we create the loudness and the amplitude from that thicker soundboard? We hit it harder, basically. We excite those strings much, much harder to create a, 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 a much more active uh, vibration to bounce off that soundboard and to create that resonance. And we do that by hammers. 
we hammer on the strings, um, unless it's a harpsichord, in which case we're plucking the strings, um, or a pianoforte, in which you are also whacking on the strings. So there's a bunch of different things going on here. You've got good quality soundboard material. And again, because we're going with a thicker, more, uh, more rigid, stronger soundboard, that density factor, you've got to have that low density in order to resonate and ring and, and sing like the piano needs to do. Um, if you compromise on the density, you're already compromising on the, you know, by going with a thicker, more dampening material. If you compromise the density, you're going to get a really dead sounding piano. Um, moreover, as I said, in order to get that sound, you've got to hit those strings harder. So the, the hammers themselves, they're mostly wrapped in felt, but the wood that's beneath the felt, and don't get me wrong, the felt that's chosen and how the felt is treated is a major, major deal. Steinway uses a merino wool that's like specific to them and produces the, the distinctive Steinway sound. But underneath that felt is usually something like hornbeam that is incredibly hard, incredibly dense, incredibly resistant to wear. Basically, think of the tools like chisels, chisel handles, um, the wear surfaces on wooden planes, like the, um, the persimmon or boxwood that's inlaid into the corner of a rabbit plane or in the quirk of a quirk OG or my hornbeam handles on my Lee Nielsen chisels. Ex incredibly resistant to denting, strike resistant, very hard, very dense, because that's what those hammers are doing thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of times, like in a concerto. They're whacking on those hard strings, so they've got to be really, really resistant. Moreover, the, the what are they called? The sticks? <laughs> <laughs> the, the hammers sit on, on, on a dowel, on, on, a, on a stick, essentially, uh, the hammer sticks. And as the string is, or excuse me, as the key is depressed through a complex mechanism, that hammer is rised up, raised up and stri strikes the, the string. Well, the stick that that hornbeam mallet head is mounted on needs to not deform in the thousands and thousands of times that it is swung and impacting that string you don't, you want a little bit of flexure in that hammer stick, but it needs to flex and go right back to its original shape. Because if that, if it flexes and it stays flexed, you're going to shorten the length of that hammer, which is then going to cause the felt to impact the string in a different place, which is going to change the tone. So birch is most often used in those hammer sticks because it doesn't deform over time. The elastic properties of the high modulus of elasticity, high stiffness, means that it will take the force and flex right back to its original shape. And it can swing that really heavy, dense hornbeam head, flexing the right amount, but bending right back to its original shape once the vector is gone, once that force is gone. Incredibly important there. So we're dealing with you know, Sitka spruce soundboards and thicker cuts. We're dealing with um, hard maple for the bridge because here again, we want to transfer the, the excited vibration from the strings. We want the most efficient means to transfer that sound into the soundboard. Hard maple is perfect for that. But what's interesting with, um, well, not just Steinway, but Steinway, you know, I think of quality pianos and I think of Steinway. Um, they have a process for tweaking the thickness of the bridge. So the bridge is made out of hard maple, but they change the thickness of the bridge at key points along it in order to reduce the stiffness, which changes the density to stiffness ratio, creating that different transmission speed, the different tonal quality and better sound transmission into the Sitka Spruce, Sitka Spruce soundboard. So you may have a thick, heavy hard maple bridge just in order to withstand the tension of those big piano strings. But by bending it and shaping it and reducing the, the or adding more flexibility in certain areas, you're increasing the sound transmission into the soundboard. It's very, very cool. So while we, you know, we talk about the technical properties of the wood, but also the shaping we're doing is changing those properties. We know that, right? The thinner something is, the more flexible it is. Um, so if you're decreasing the thickness and increasing the flexibility, you're changing that Young's modulus, which is changing that resonant coefficient. Pretty cool stuff when you start to think about it. You can start to wrap your head around it and boggles the mind when you think about the development of these instruments over time. Which brings you to an interesting thing. Like, how did we know? Like, how do people know to start using mahogany? How do people know that Sitka spruce was the best soundboard material? Well, in the end, it comes down to what was available. You know, 
in today's day and age, we we have woods from all over the world that are available. You know, when you look at um, woodwinds in uh, early Europe, early Europe, like before we started um, age of imperialism and the age of discovery and going into Africa and going into Asia and going into before South America was even a thing, before we knew it existed, in those those tropical rainforest woods, the woodwinds were made out of local English woods, like boxwood, or you were all used. That we quickly discovered that boxwood makes a great tone. It's great for flutes. It's great for woodwinds. Well, boxwood also is kind of small. And when things like African blackwood were discovered, it was like, oh, hell no, I'm not using boxwood anymore. I'm building my clarinet out of African blackwood. Well, now we have access to African blackwood. Back then, you picked up what was on the ground. And because of that, we find that there's regionality that just comes based upon what was available. So by mixing species of soundboards, um, the backs, the necks, the fretboards, um, the bridges, to blend and create very distinct sounds in a particular instrument, we find that regional music is often, often defined by the timbre of the instrument because it's built from local materials. A good example of this, um, flamenco and flamenco guitars, it has a very distinct rhythm, dynamic nature, very assertive kind of twang, not twangy, but very assertive bright um, timbre, very, very quick attack, you know, pop, 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 pop. That, that quick attack comes from the Spanish cypress that's been used in the soundboards. Flamenco, I associate with Spain. Um, Spanish cypress, <laughs> you should also associate with Spain. That's why they call it Spanish cypress. That cypress creates that quick attack, that very assertive timbre that's consistent with flamenco. So some guy used Spanish Cypress to build a guitar and he created this bum, bum, bum sound and somebody was like, ooh, I like that. And he stepped his fingers and stamped his little clogged feet on the ground and that created a high percussive sound. And then the guy played again and it was like, oh, now we have this whole style of music that is so defined by that assertive sound that started because that's how Spanish Cypress, that's the color of the soundboard made out of Spanish Cypress. Stradivarius violins are renowned as the violins, like the greatest sound. Well, they gain their richness from the particular spruce that grows in the Northern Italian Alps. I think it's the, the Fien Valley, something like that. I can't remember the exact name, but that distinct sound, the distinct soil chemistry that produces the density and the hardness and the various structures of that spruce is what makes the Stradivarius violin what it is. Not only that, the shaping of, of the, the ribs inside and the shaping of the soundboard and everything, but there are a lot of people who have studied Stradivarius, you know, and, and God forbid, taken apart a Stradivarius and exactly emulated the shapes and the thicknesses and the, and the curves of that violin, and it's not the same because it's not the same spruce from that Northern Italian Alpine Valley to create that distinct sound. Um, one that I like to think about because I was born in Hawaii is uh, ukuleles. Traditionally, ukuleles are made from koa, which is a Hawaiian wood. It grows all over Hawaii. Hawaii's not that big though, so there's not that much koa. That koa, when you when you talk to people and people make solid-bodied guitars that get a toa out of koa, it's got a very distinct sound, a very uh, kind of a medium density but high stiffness. Um, and the structure of it allows for a great deal of stiffness over a very short piece. We think about the average size of a ukulele. You've got a very short section, and yet it maintains that stiffness over a short section. So you get this very kind of punchy sound with a clear fundamental tone, very little overtone to it, which is pretty much how a ukulele sounds. And the whole Polynesian style of music, of, of punchy strumming, comes from the sound that the ukulele made. And there are, you know, there are a variety of other woods that, that are used to make ukuleles these days, but they pretty much try to mimic that medium density and high rigidity of koa in order to get that same color to it. Um, one more I think is fun because uh, I've thrown out the didgeridoo several times. Very distinct sound, right? I mean, it's a woodwind. It's a giant woodwind that makes that wow sound. <laughs> that was my didgeridoo expression, impression. It's very distinct but again, a lot of that has to do with the eucalyptus that they were originally made from. Eucalyptus, well, there's so many different eucalyptuses in Australia, but it's common all over Australia. 
and it's what creates that sound. It's an, it's, it's an aerophone relying upon a very hard, very stable, incredibly dense, silica-rich eucalyptus. Um, also happens to come in the typical longer sizes that you use to make a didgeridoo. And somebody found eucalyptus lying on the ground, lots of it, picked it up, bored a hole through it, started blowing through it, and said, ooh, that creates a cool sound. And that became the didgeridoo. Um, and there are lots of people out there who make didgeridoos out of other species. And yeah, they can get them close by manipulating several things. But that original sound, that style of music came from the eucalyptus. So tone woods, really, we're talking about density. We're talking about hardness. We're talking about those factors that make a good soundboard, low density, high hardness. By manipulating those things, you can increase their resonance. You can decrease their resonance. You can change the timbre a little bit. You can change how long they sustain that sound by messing with the density and the hardness. You can manipulate other things like the shape, but in the end, it really comes down to those two factors, density and stiffness. And, and, and you, could, you could say a third, which is hardness, which kind of plays hand in hand with density. But by manipulating those things for a certain effect, for a certain outcome, you can create beautiful music. And that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about tone woods, is that understanding of those acoustical properties, how the sound is sustained, how it's damped, how the speed of sound is affected as it moves through that material. What are its inherent vibrational properties? And all of that is dependent upon the structure of the wood and the structure of the wood in what direction you're referring to, tangential, long longitudinal, or radial. And by manipulating that, you get a different tone wood. Um, so yeah, tone woods can be a lot of different things. And there's a lot of woods that just won't fly, right? You know, they have low density, but they're just not, they're super, super flexible. Or they may have really high density, but you know, they, they're just, they're, they're super, super heavy. Other things come into play, certainly the aesthetics, the look and the, the feel of it, the availability of it is all going to play into that. We can do things with resins and impregnation of wood in order to change those technical properties that will allow us to use other species, that will allow us to continue to build instruments even though certain woods will become endangered and certain woods need to be stopped being used in order to maintain that ecosystem and, and to, to maintain their sustainability. But will it ever create that same sound? The more we optimize, the more we engineer those woods, the more we lose that organic nature. And we might have to wonder, um, how can we replicate that? And we may find that with computer and sampling of sounds, um, we're going to be able to get pretty close. Modern synthesizers, modern electronic pianos are shockingly different from the pianos I learned to play on, my little Casio I learned to play on, as compared to the the Yamaha Clavinova that um, you know, my wife uses in her um, her classrooms every day. Totally different sound, much, much richer sound, but it's still an electronically produced sound. But here again, sound is just waves, right? And if you can understand those overtones and those midtones and those undertones, and you can replicate them, maybe we can, re we can reproduce the organic nature of, of woods. What I think you're gonna have a hard time reproducing though is groups of instruments played together. The rich sound that comes from an entire orchestra of violins and violas and oboes and bassoons all playing together, each individual instrument with its own character, creating that wall of sound is gonna be very difficult to reproduce without the magical world of wood. So with that being said, folks, thank you for listening. Go buy some wood and tap on it and see what you think of its tonal qualities. 